Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today we're going to conclude our three-part series with the authors of The Hidden Potential of DNS in Security, Josh Kuo and Ross Gibson. So, Josh, Ross, thank you for uh, being on the show one more time. Thank Glad you. to be back. Now, um, one of the five areas, we've been kind of going through the, the five areas of DNS abuse that discussed in the book. You got a great chart on this that I like. Um, but one of them is just DNS as a transport, which I think for a lot of people, they're not even a, that aware of DNS uh, having that function. So, um, Josh, why don't you start off, start off by explaining how are you using the term transport in the book and how, how it relates to DNS in general? Sure. Yeah. So what we mean, obviously, would be transport of other information that's not intended uh, in the DNS protocol, because DNS was designed to be, hey, I want to I want to find out the IP address of this name or I want to find out who my mail servers are. So that's information being sent back and forth. Um, and what, what we mean when we say transport is there are people using this legitimately or not, uh, you can argue the case, different uses, they say, hey, oh, I can use that to pass back different information. I'm going to encode that information in a way that others can't read um, and send off as a DNS query. And then maybe something else comes back as the answer. And uh, we've seen uh, examples where this could be used uh, for, say, a music streaming service, use this to synchronize a playlist. Uh, or that that would be, I guess, the more legitimate use or non-malicious use. And then, you know, I'll let the listeners' imagination take them. <laughs> if you're the attacker, what could you do with this technique? Well, and, and other examples that uh, I think I've seen in the book, uh, you have banking apps. And the one I thought was interesting is even security apps are doing this. AV companies, you mentioned. I mean, it just seems really interesting to me, particularly with the security companies that hold it. You're all about, you know, protecting people. And that means use things the right ways. But when you start abusing something like DNS and using it for something it wasn't really intended for, that sounds like a big hole to me. Um, and, and also, you know, kind of think of it, DNS, uh, one of the things I like about DNS is it is a very clear, crisp, very purpose-built protocol to send the amount of data I might, you know, like if I was going to steal a terabyte of data from somebody, I don't think I'd use DNS because the information I could claim in a single HTTP packet could take hundreds of DNS packets. I mean, it's it's not really designed to move a lot of data. So what are they doing with it? What, how, why would they use this when it's so inefficient from that standpoint? Because it's so reliably open at the end of the day. That's And that's why the security vendors use it, right? Because then they don't have to tell people, oh, well, in order to use our service, you have to open up, you know, the ability for all of your endpoints to be able to talk to, you know, these places on the Internet. And a lot of places are going to be like, no, I'm not going to open up all of my endpoints to talk directly to something on the Internet. And so they, they still need to get that data out, right, whether it just be a, a straight file signature or something like that. And if they can just send out a DNS query and accept it on their other end and they say, oh, okay, you know, I got it from this client and here's the signature I got. We're good to go. 
And, and that's why it's the same reason that the attackers use it, because it's so reliably open, because you have to have DNS functioning in order to work in any kind of, you know, internet capable capacity, right? And, and even more so, the more that, sh that stuff shifts to the cloud, right? You know, how are, how are you going to do email if you're using cloud-based email without DNS? You're not. So yeah, it's, it it's open everywhere. Well, I'm starting to think about it. You know, um, large corporations didn't have a very, uh, you know, I don't want to call it closed environment, very structured environment. They have their own DNS. They try to make sure everything uses that. Um, so they have visibility of everything from, I mean, because today it's not just laptops and desktops. It, I have a smart TV in my conference room and who knows what it might be trying to do on the internet. So everything goes through their own DNS, but the vast bulk of, of companies in that mid section there, a lot of them still, um, they just, oh, my phone can go to wherever it wants to for DNS and my laptop can go wherever I've configured it. I, you know, the IT department gave me the laptop and they had it set up for something. But if I want to change it to a 1.1.1.1, because that's what I like to use, or I read an article somewhere, I don't know what it means, but I've read an article. I've, I, by the way, I've run into people like that. They have no idea what they pointed it to, but they read an article that this was faster. And so they used it. So People are using multiple DNS uh, resolvers, right? I mean, it gets pretty messy in there. It, it can be incredibly messy. Um, and, and that's, like you said, with, with some more sophisticated, larger enterprises, they'll actually lock it down. And honestly, any, any company really should be preventing the use of external DNS servers by their internal clients, right? You should have a certain selection of, in, of DNS servers that are able to, to recurse out to the internet, but nothing else should be sending out DNS traffic to the internet. And, and you know, giving up that capability is just asking for all kinds of nefarious activity to be going on without you having any visibility into it at all. Yeah. Josh, you have some thoughts there? Yes, so some of the uh, listeners or viewers may remember DNS Changer from a few years ago. Um, so that would nicely illustrate this point. The NS Changer changes your uh, Windows desktop setting to use a different DNS uh, lookup server. So when you look up Microsoft.com, sure, returns an IP address of the attacker's choosing. Uh, and then they'll display whatever, it'll take you to places that you didn't want to go. So, but on your web browser, it still shows, you know, Microsoft or whatever you typed in. And fortunately, you know, they didn't take it too far. This is quite a few years ago. So I think they only display some advertisement, try to collect some money. Um, thankfully, that was before the crypto um, currency has cursed all of us. So <laughs> nowadays, I can guarantee you that's going to be some kind of ransomware. Yeah, yeah. It, the the ramifications of, of this is, has definitely gone up, um, which actually I think is a point in and of itself. A lot of this is not like new, new. Um, but to Ross's point, you know, I think one of the things that was holding back the, back the mid market from having their own DNS resolver is that it used to require, you know, racking up some hardware and some pretty big upfront expenses. But now there are cloud services where companies can get total visibility and control of their DNS, but they can do it all in the cloud. So a lot of those barriers are gone, but I don't think the news has kind of reached the people uh, responsible for it. Um, you know, and, and that's why we did this whole series 
is that you guys are helping emphasize the value of knowing what's in your DNS and taking control of it. Um, but from a transport layer, some of the examples that uh, you've both shared, um, like the AV side, that's where they're sending stuff in. Um, and, you know, what about stealing stuff out? How are, how are the bad guys using this today? Uh, we've talked about the legitimate or <laughs> gray area users, <laughs> but from a totally, you know, malicious standpoint, how are they using it? Are they just using it to steal data or what? They can use it to steal data for sure, as but they can also use it to control things, right? So we we've seen and, and have examples in the book where you know you'll have a piece of malware that's sitting on you know a compromised system, just sitting there waiting for the instruction, and every once in a while it'll check in, and then when it gets a certain command back, you know based on the DNS response that comes in, it will then take action. So you can certainly send data into an enterprise or, you know, into any network via DNS just as much as you can to extract data. Right. And I want to uh, add something in here too, something that's kind of unique to DNS, that there is a hop, uh, sort of a hopping mechanism in DNS. You can forward query to the next DNS server and we'll just keep passing it out uh, until it reaches the internet. So uh, this is something we also cover in the book. We have a case study showing that there are some networks where that these people securing a network thought they were secure. This network has no direct internet access. However, there's a DNS server on this network that can talk to another DNS server, to another, to another, which re eventually reaching the internet. Um, and the case study we cover was actually a, a, a uh, spyware that was stealing um, actual state secrets and hiding them, disguising them as DNS messages and hopping through all these DNS servers out of this secret network to the internet and back. Um, yeah, and I think one of the, the values of using DNS, um, if I put on my I'm a bad guy hat, um, you know, I'm worried that a lot of companies, uh, DLP, data loss prevention tools, those have become pretty popular, pretty common. And if I'm trying to steal something that they're probably going to keep an eye out for, um, guess what? DLP products don't monitor DNS. They're never going to see it. If we've got our tools are designed to scan the content of communications, they're going to fail. They, they've got, they're, they're handicapped from the get-go, not just from encryption, but by using a protocol that's not even being monitored. So I see some, uh, some advantages to using DNS as, as a bad guy. That, that's something I would really want to lean to. And I think I've seen it and I also wanted to highlight the scenario that occurred to me as I was going into this. And, and I mentioned earlier, you're not going to use DNS to steal terabytes of data. You're going to be selective. And if you look at most of the breaches that you'll see in the news, it's because somebody got a hold of somebody's credentials. Well, guess what? All I need is a couple of login IDs and passwords. Those are easy to extract in a few DNS packets goes low and slow under the radar by on a protocol nobody's watching. And the next thing you know, you got somebody outside who can log in in a perfectly legitimate way. So um, it, it's a very, it's got some very tactical advantages, I would think, to the bad guys. Yeah, I would agree. Especially, you know, the, the example that you put out there is a very good one because 
you can send out a very small amount of data and still cause a huge compromise, right? You know, and, and it doesn't even take specialized code or even any kind of coding skills, right? If you can type bobhansman.badguy.com and just send that query, we've already extracted the name. Now you just do one with the password and there you go. So it, yeah. it really is something that can be used very easily. I mean, you could, you know, have a person typing in a few credit card numbers, right? Maybe not, a, maybe not a huge, massive undertaking, but you can easily take data that otherwise you'd have no way of getting out of an environment and can send it through pretty much unimpeded. Right. Yeah, there was a, one of those slow leaking attacks uh, from years ago, a couple of decades ago, that I recall, they didn't use DNS at the time, but it was the same concept, your credit card example. Um, a guy who had been a hacker and was caught by uh, a, an American uh, security agency, let's say, and they told him, hey, we'll save you all that prison time if you'll work for us. And so they would get called in when people got breached and they'd say, well, we're going to bring this guy in. He'll tell you how he got breached. And whenever he went into banks, he would do his due diligence, do the job. He'd find out what happened. He was really good at that. But he would also install a little thing of his own. And every day it would send him two or three credit card numbers and it randomized it. And so he was collecting two or three credit card numbers a day. That was it. Just two or three credit card numbers a day from some of the biggest banks in the world. I think he even had some logic in there where he only did it if they had like a, a you know, a available limit over $10,000 or something like that. But it doesn't have to be a ton of data. I think the news is full of those smash and grab kind of things. And we so often forget that either A, the real valuable stuff really didn't require that much data or to get to that, it started with just a couple of key pieces of information. Josh, you looked like you were trying to say something and I was stepping on you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was trying to make a uh, add on to what Ross said. Um, in addition to sending these little pieces of data outbound, one of the reasons why attackers would choose DNS is it's everywhere. It's available on any device. Um, it's already part of the operating system. It doesn't, I don't care what, what you have because your device is not going to be able to function on the network without the ability to, to do a DNS query. Uh, and then in fact, Ross has written a uh, uh, set of code as a proof of concept before that just using ev everything that's already built on your system. And he did that as a demonstration to send out using just system available tools DNS queries and take a bunch of, you know, fake made up credit card numbers outbound. And it, it easily evades most security um, uh, uh, perimeters and firewalls and detection mechanisms. And then he has a DNS server on the other hand to catch it. Um, yeah. And as I think we talked about in our previous episode, it's not just because um, people aren't looking for it. It's like DNS, when you're in the architecture, you're not using DNS security as an add-on to a firewall or a secure web gateway or something like that. When you actually embed it within your DNS architecture, you take control of it, you have visibility of so much more data. So with that visibility, how, because uh, you guys also uh, work for Infoblox in addition to being uh, authors of this book, how are you detecting this kind of data exfiltration? Is it just a list of known bad sites and you block it? Or is there some magic there with machine learning and what everybody's now calling AI? 
you know, six years ago, it was just machine learning, but now we're going to call the big stuff AI. Well, I'd say, you know, from an InfoBlocks perspective specifically, there's, there's definitely some machine learning and AI going on that's, that's doing this in the background, right? We certainly have the traditional reputational data, right, where we already know that the domain is bad. There's no point in analyzing any further. Let's just get rid of it. But for anything that's emerging or maybe it's a very specialized, you know, single attack, you've got to actually start looking at the data that's there. And then similar to how we were talking about classifying suspicious looking domains, you can take that traffic and then look at different characteristics and use that to kind of come up with an idea of, you know, is this more likely data that's being passed over DNS or is it more likely legitimate traffic? And, and we talk about this in the book, some of the different, you know, things that you can look at, like doing a lexical analysis, like to see if it's using like actual words or not, um, and entropy and other, there are a lot of different pieces, characteristics that you can look at and combining all of those aspects together, you can get a pretty good idea of when something is actually trying to pass data over DNS versus being legitimate DNS traffic. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, so we include that chapter in the book. Uh, we we dive quite deep in um, how to, you know, which mathematical formula to use to analyze your pattern, to test for entropy, to test for the randomness, to test for all these patterns. Not that our readers will be rolling their own DNS detection system, because <laughs> I don't think that's realistic. Uh, our goal is that our readers would understand how this is achieved. So when they are selecting a DNS security vendor, then they can ask these vendors, well, how are you dealing with this? How is your system um, detecting for these types of patterns? Um, so that, that's kind of that, that we include that in, in the uh, in the book, uh, in, the, in the chapter so that uh, hopefully readers can look at that and see the value and understand how it works and now help them pick a better solution. Yeah, yeah and, I think and I'll, I'll actually add on, on top of that, um, you know, as, as Josh talked about, we kind of talk about how it works and characteristics that you would look for. The, the book itself is, is agnostic vendor wise, right? It's not mm -hmm. an InfoBlock specific book. This is for DNS security. So it's, it cuts across any product that you would use specifically. It doesn't point to one particular one. It's more about methodology from an attacker's perspective, and then the types of tools that you can use to address those those threats. Yeah, definitely, and and that's why I keep it as a reference myself, is because it is uh, uh, tremendously agnostic. And I uh, another thing that I started getting into and started realizing, again, a lot of people, um, uh, you know, Josh mentioned at one time that a lot of people just think of it as hey, here's the domain name I have. What's the IP address? And they get a response. They think of it as that. That's it. You know, one packet out, one packet back. Um, but there are lots of different kinds of DNS records. Um, I remember reading uh, recently there was an attack, which is kind of rare, using the text record, the TXT type records. So the way that they can do this through DNS there's actually a lot of different methods that they can use, which is why just a flat, you know, check this and it's bad, you know, uh, in a packet, it should never be bigger than this. If there's anything written in this space, they must be stealing data. It's really not simple. It's a fairly complex thing to identify when uh, activity is, is being, uh, or when data is being transferred. Right, and I think to complicate matters even further, 
uh, that's changing. Because um, uh, new DNS record types constantly are rolling out. Just they keep coming out with them. Uh, one of the most recent ones is a very confusingly named record called HTTP. <laughs> um, so it's very confusing. <laughs> so I call it uh, Type 65 because that's the code IANA assigned it. Um, so this doesn't exist two years ago. And some security vendors might say, yeah, I'm going to block all known, uh, I mean, I'm going to allow all known record types. Uh, and if I don't know what 65 is because it's so new, I'm just going to outright block it. Um, that's not going to work because uh, uh, I, I have contacts in the uh, service uh, uh, provider industry saying, well, that's already very quickly become the second most popular type of DNS records. If you observe DNS records on the network, a huge amount of them is going to be this new record type, type 65. You can't block it. Um, now, do you know how to analyze it? Probably not. It's so new. I don't know if security vendors have built in the logic <laughs> to look for, is this a legitimate one or a malicious one? Well, and, and then, you know, so you, I mean, you point out a great point. So DNS continues to evolve. Um, that's a big issue. But then we also have, which we started out, today's episode, there's also legitimate reasons to send this. I mean, just, you know, tunneling over DNS. So I need to be able to block malicious data transport, but I need to allow the legitimate stuff. And that may include a lot of those things in that gray area that we talked about. So this is not that straightforward. It's not as, you know, uh, we have allow lists and deny lists. It's, it's more than that. There's, uh, I mean, for example, DNS tunneling. I know there's a lot of malware that will try to do that. So that if you happen to try and scan the content to see if they're stealing the secret formula to Coca-Cola, um, you won't be able to see inside it because it's all encrypted. How, I mean, how accurate is that? Uh, how, how, I mean, how many packets does it take to identify something like that? Because um, packets are small. There's not a lot in any one to give you a whole lot of clues. I mean, this is, I'll use the term again, it's messy. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly is. And, and that's why you have to leverage things like, you know, the cloud to do that level of analysis, because there's, you know, one of the things about DNS, and I think, as we talked about some of the challenges that you see in the smaller and medium sized businesses, is when you look at DNS traffic, it's a tremendous amount of data. I mean, it's, it's a massive amount of data, even for just one client across a day, it can be, you know, tens of thousands or even millions of queries. And so you have to have something that can handle those large volumes of data, especially as they're spread over time and doing that analysis, like you're saying, to put, put those little pieces together to actually come up with, oh, here's what's going on, right? Because if you look at each individual piece, it's not going to tell you anything. It only becomes a full picture as you start to stick those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. And, you know, I look at the different types of, of communications and, uh, you know, there's just so much uh, flexibility within it. Um, plus, it's also containing, I, I do like the privacy aspect of it. Um, DNS is designed so that at every hop, it pretty much hides everybody beyond the hop. So if I get a, if I'm somewhere in that chain, you know, like I'm a little local recursive, I will see the client who asked me for the information. And I have that client ID. But when I go to the next person and say, hey, I don't know this. Do you know about this? I just give them my identity. And so a lot of the information, I mean, DNS is designed to be a private protocol. 
But then they the bad guys find out so many ways to work around all of that's built in security design. Well, I would actually say there's a little bit of privacy almost by accident in DNS. Because <laughs> um, as you know, this protocol was designed in the 80s where when, when privacy was not really even a word for the internet. Um, so there is, there is some uh, features in DNS that will grant you some privacy, but most of it is not. Uh, and I think, again, this is a part maybe a lot of listeners may not be aware of. Uh, so when you look up a domain, say uh, xyz.google.com, that full name gets sent to the root DNS server. And that can be collected, can be studied at that level. So if, if I have access to, uh, um, if I can tap into that network, I can basically see the, the query patterns of the entire internet. In fact, that's how a lot of the research uh, on the internet is being conducted, is studying all these queries that's hitting the DNS root servers. So they can see, hey, what names are people looking up across the world today without tapping into your network? I just sit at the root server and, and see look at all this data that's flooding into me. Um, so in that in that regard, it does, you know, there, that becomes of a privacy concern. Um, and I'll pass on the uh, the next board into Ross because he's uh, specializing more on the local privacy part. Yeah, so the, the privacy piece is, is an interesting one. As Josh said, it was never designed to be private, right? And, and as he also pointed out, you know, you traditionally you would send the entire query to the root, right? There's also a concept now of what's called QNAME minimization, where it would send to the root just saying, you know, rather than saying www.example.com, it would just say, I'm looking for com. And then when it was going to com, it'd say, I'm looking for example.com. And it would only send the pieces. So it's getting better. Um, but in addition to that, the, the, what's traditionally been called the last mile problem is the communication between the actual client and its recursive DNS server. And that's where the things like dot and doe have come in is to try to fill in the issue in the last mile and grant privacy there, which creates problems in the enterprise space. But for, you know, just Joe user out at home, it's great because now their ISP isn't necessarily or somebody else can't just sniff the traffic and say, oh, well, we see you're going here and there and everywhere. And then there's a concept of even going beyond that to take what's called ODO or oblivious DO, where you actually have two hops in there where you've got one that's basically proxying to another. So that one knows who the client is, but doesn't know what the message is. And then the other knows what the message is, but doesn't know who the client is. So you can, you can layer that, you know, at the end of the day, do I think that this is a problem that really needs to be solved? I don't know. Some people think it's really critical. Personally, I, you know, based on my experience in the enterprise world, I think that having the ability to, to view and control DNS is very important, particularly for any enterprise network. I think that they should have the ability to, to do that control. Externally, when you're dealing with people's stuff at home, that's kind of a different issue. 
All right. Well, unfortunately, we have wrapped up our time for this last episode, although I uh, there's a few other areas in the book I really want to get uh, get you back here on, uh, maybe drill into some zero trust and some things like that. So to the the listeners and viewers out there, um, please check out the book. It's called The Hidden Potential of DNS Insecurity. Um, and uh, if you haven't heard any of the other uh, episodes, this was uh, the last of a three part series. Uh, with authors Josh Quo and uh, Ross Gibson. So, Josh, Ross, thank you very much for uh, being on the show today. Thanks a lot, Bob. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Happy to be here. Great. And uh, if anybody's interested in how to get the book, you can find it on Amazon.com or uh, there are links in, we're trying to put links in a number of the uh, uh, abstracts and descriptions or go to the infoblocks.com website, look up our podcasts and uh, you will find the links on all the pages for all the episodes. So I do want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for your time. Please join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk. <laughs>